This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Layton. And Leighton was raised by an abusive sexual predator. It's a story of parental alienation, being a prop, loneliness, faux Mormonism, coping mechanisms, and the healing process. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Leighton. How are you? Hello, I'm good. (laughs) Well, I am happy you are doing well. And if you want to be a guest on our show like Leighton is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. At the top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. Please read all of the instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or send us a message through our Submit page and press the Submit button. So today, you are going to hear... Leighton's story. This is not an easy story to listen to. It's a family story. It is about her dad, but you will also uh, learn a lot or be validated through her experience as the daughter of someone who was uh, abusing other women. You're going to see things through her point of view as a child. So you're going to get a lot of relationship stuff in this episode. You're going to get family stuff in this episode. Her dad was also a con man, and her dad was also a a predator. And there's a big trigger warning on this episode because there's physical abuse. There is emotional abuse. There is sexual abuse that goes on in this episode. There is child sexual abuse that goes on in this episode. There's mention of all of these things. Nothing happens between Leighton and her dad, but her dad... um, is uh, a pedophile um, that will come out later so uh, it's a big 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 trigger warning so please do not listen to this episode uh, if this is going to really trigger you uh, this is not an easy story to tell so a really big thank you to uh, Leighton for being here with us today and now without further ado Leighton the floor is now yours. Yes. (laughs) So I will begin from as early as I can remember. Um, So my dad is a covert, very extreme covert narcissist. And I always thought he was a really bad guy. Um, But I didn't ever realize to the extent how bad it was until I had a lot of space from him. And now I'm 26. So I've had three, three years of a break from him where I cut him out and that's been really eye opening. So 
yeah, I've never opened up about all of this. So this is my first podcast opening up about all of it. Um, so yeah, thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being here with us. And when it comes to your dad, uh, who is your dad? How much do you know about your dad as far as where he came from, how he grew up? And tell us a little bit about your uh, mom as well before we get into your experience of uh, growing up with them. So my dad grew up in Scotland in this, like, at the time, a really kind of um, very poor, rough place to grow up. It's this place called Castle Milk. Half of it, like, isn't even there anymore. And um, he had a really bad childhood. His mom has a lot of um, mental issues. I'm not entirely sure, like, if there's even diagnoses, but she was very neglectful at the least. You know, he used to see her um, be used by men for sex, for you know, money or food or whatever. And she would leave for like weeks at a time and he would take care of his little sister. So he, he grew up with like really severe abuse. Um, and he was also just like a very small kid. So I think he was bullied quite a lot. Um, but when he turned, I think 16 or 17, he went to the army. So, um, he was in the army for a few years and that's when he met my mom and my mom was 16 at the time. And in a way, like I was raised by my dad, but my mom, you know, she's also been like really heavily like imprinted, if you would. Um, you know, it's in a lot of ways, all that she really knew about what like a respectful romantic relationship would have been was from him. Like he was her first and everything. Um, and obviously it was a really abusive relationship to her. So. Um, my mom grew up with like a really big family. She has like six siblings and she was like given away when she was a baby to her grandmother because her real mom just, my mom just fell through the cracks. So when my mom met my dad, I think my dad obviously being very stereotypical narcissist, he obviously latched onto her and really gave her like all the love. I think that my mom hadn't really felt before. I guess I shouldn't say love, like attention. I should say attention. She's had a really hard time. You know, he really stripped her of her livelihood. And so by the time I was born, you know, there really wasn't much maternal energy, I don't think, left. Um, we've done a lot of healing over it now. So we've kind of luckily come together, you know, and she's made a lot of apologies over the years. But that being said, you know, I think, I think she did her best that she could have at the time. She's also kind of a victim to him too so yeah that's how they met and um it didn't it didn't go well um I think that there's a lot of from what my mom tells me she's blocked out a lot of it but I know she's had like multiple abortions um with him just because obviously it was an environment that she wanted to ever have a baby and um still to this day, I'm like, thank God, you know, it would have been terrible to have a sibling in a lot of ways. It would have been great, but it would have been terrible. Um, he used to throw things at her, you know, kick her, dominate her, put her down a lot, like just, just a lot of really intense psychological abuse. And I think the physical abuse was secondary to that, but nonetheless, you know, it was just constant, a lot of cheating and sex addictions outside of her, just, she went through it with him. So, yeah. 
so eventually they split up. Yep. And how does custody work at this point? So they split up when I was three and um, I was born in England. When my mom broke up with him, she just packed her stuff and left. I think that she had found him essentially, I think, having sex in the house with um, some woman at the time. (laughs) She's like some random woman. And she was like, well, that's the final straw. I'm out. That was what I needed. That was the excuse I needed. And he pretty much said, you can't take Leighton. And she literally ripped me from his arms and left her car, left all of her stuff and just like ran out the door and grabbed the first flight. I think that it was a very like intense situation. Obviously they'd had a blowout about him cheating. So she ran out of the house and we moved to Northern Ireland, which is where I was raised until I was 12. And he was in the picture for like a while, like two years. I was so young. I don't remember it. Probably the best two years of my life. If I look back now, I don't remember any hassle. It was just non-memorable, which is amazing. Um, But yeah, I uh, stayed in Northern Ireland and he was kind of gone doing whatever he's doing. And then finally he popped up out of nowhere, moved to Northern Ireland. And, um, you know, from there on out until I was 12, he moved into a kind of like on the dole, like a welfare housing, similar thing in Britain. And uh, my mom, you know, he was hounding my mom for rent money. He was like stalking her eventually. Potentially he was just like, hey, I'm, I'm moving back to move back to Northern Ireland. You're going to do what I want. You're going to do what I say. If you don't do what I say, you're just a terrible person. Like files of emails and calls and just hounded her, you know? So she was so submissive at that point after living with him for so long, she just gave him all the money he wanted. And then I would spend, you know, a day on day off with my mom and then with him for years. And uh, yeah, that was, that my foundations for, you know, growing up, that's kind of where it started to unravel a lot more. And at this time, going back and forth with your mom, you had some sort of peace there for a little bit as well. Uh, Who are you at this age? And are you a caretaker to your mom in any way? Like, uh, do you have self-esteem at this age? What's kind of going on with you at this time while you're observing all of this? So I um, I was pretty much shoved into childcare. So because my mom is not only, she's a single mother, right? So she's paying for me. She's also paying for my dad's lifestyle, which he just has obviously like a money spending addiction and he's not working. He doesn't have any intention to work. So she's essentially taking care of two children. Um, and I was put into childcare because she was just working all the time. You know, she was, she just, she talks to me all the time about it. And, and, um, I have some memories with her, like we went on holiday and stuff, but a lot of my childhood memories is me being in childcare. You know, when I was at my mom's house, I was out playing in the street with all of my friends and this, you know, until like midnight or my cousin, my, I was lucky that my cousin lived right by me. Um, I was always out playing in the mud and just kind of being a rebunctious, rebellious kid. But when I was at my dad's house, you know, it was a whole different ball game. It was like this other life. So I'll kind of go into this story, which is really relevant later on when I drop the bomb that, you know, he was a predator. Um, but he would pick me up from childcare when it was his days to take care of me. And we would 
walk the long way home back to his house. And um, we would always try to find like shortcuts, you know, because it's miles of a walk. He didn't drive. And he would trespass onto people's like lawns and things and tell me to go wait in the woods while he needed to go pee or whatever. And uh, that was a really common thing that happened. Like pretty much every time he would pick me up, we would go through this golf course. And obviously I'll go into that. I'll, 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 I'll reveal what that story is about a little later as we keep going. But um, yeah, there's a lot of memories of, you know, him picking me up and just doing illegal things to like get me. He had no boundaries for the law, you know, like trespassing, putting me on his back and walk me home late at night or just walking miles in the rain because he wanted to go and talk to a pretty girl at the pharmacy he wanted to go hit on or whatever. Like there was just no fun for me when I was with him. It was work. It was walk. And then when we got home, I just was planked in front of a TV pretty much. And if I wasn't being yelled at by him. So um, the days I was with him was very different experience being with my mom's house and being at my dad's house. So, yeah. And you mentioned there that you were being yelled at. So at this time you are being verbally abused. Yes, I'm being like every single day when we'd walk home for, you know, an hour, maybe two, or we'd walk all the way to the stores so he could go hit on women for an hour, maybe two. Um, it was just him venting at me, talking bad about my mom, talking terrible to me about my family, telling me that I'm really selfish for caring about them and that I should, that he's my favorite, I should tell him he's my favorite parent, you know, like just very... um brainwashing narratives like trying to just plant seeds like long-term seeds um so i would never leave him in the future when i get older i think when i look back now that's kind of what it felt like um i was a i was an emotional tampon for him <laughs> every time i was at his house and um there was no physical abuse at that point but there was definitely like dominatory behavior so like a very big lack of boundaries i think started happening when i was quite young before the physical abuse you know there was no um you know I couldn't go to the bathroom without him knocking I, I had to sleep in the bed with him until I was like 11 I, I wasn't really allowed to have friends I wasn't allowed to have fun constantly uh psychologically like invading me you know like really trying to ask me like really just not really age-appropriate questions or having age-appropriate conversations like not just about sex but like talking to me about like really existential psychological things that he just wanted to harp on about because he cared about them you know it was just I was something to talk to not really with so so disordered or abusive dads may have different types of uses for their children but right now it seems like your dad uses you specifically as a pawn to get what he wants and it also sounds like you're used as the quote unquote uh, cute daughter accessory for when he hits on women up until this point but would you also consider yourself uh, his parent at this point and are you caretaking the home or is there, I guess, the biggest undertaking going on? Are you caretaking all of his emotional needs? And 
you know, this isn't just a story about your dad in a way. Um, your mom is a tiny bit a part of this story. So when it comes to your mom, what's going on with uh, your mom's home and how you're feeling inside that home? Yeah, so I was absolutely his parent, like emotionally for a really young age. Um, even in a way, maybe like financially as well. Um, you know, he would guilt trip my mom like, hey, gotta, you want to feed your daughter, you want to be a good mom, right? Like, give me money so I can feed our daughter. But really, he just wanted the money for him. So I mean, in a lot of ways, I was more than just an emotional parent for him. I was, I was his like tool to use. Um, and uh, for my mom, my mom, I was not an emotional parent for her. But that being said, I think I was just kind of a placeholder, you know, like a technicality. At least that's what I felt at the time. Um, I know she loved me a lot, but as a young age, I did feel like just like a burden. Yeah. Like a burden for her, keeping her attached to him. And for him, I was his meal ticket. So, yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. (laughs) You have two different parents, two different homes, two different sets of expectations or realities going on. It's amazing that you're sitting here talking to me and you're 26 years old. Um, <laughs> and uh, later I'll ask you, or maybe I'll ask you right now, um, you know, what are your biggest issues? You have to have uh, a bunch. Oh, I've got lots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot. Um, so I really struggle with, you know, like the kind of what you would see is like the t- textbook uh, complex PTSD symptoms. So, um, this is from the emotional trauma, like never mind, like the physical stuff that comes on later. Um, but I think even from that age, you know, ever since like all the stuff I've been telling you, I've been, since then I've been experiencing very severe, like anxiety. Like I, uh, talk a lot, but a part of that is my personality, but a big part of that is, um, the, feeling the need to like over explain to make sure I'm not communicating to somebody where they misinterpret what I mean. Because when I was younger, if I communicated, I could never say anything right. I was always going to be punished by him and stuff. So I I over communicate from a place of like anxiety a lot. Still, I got diagnosed with OCD a couple of years ago, maybe two years ago, intrusive thoughts. I get a lot, you know, where, um, because I think I had no boundaries when I was so young that, you know, almost everything I do, I'm like second guessing, you know, it's just my brain is constantly on the lookout for the worst case scenario. Um, so that's something that's been really difficult for me and has gotten a lot better recently. But, you know, I think that I've got a while longer in that. And, um, you know, disassociation, the typical PTSD. Um, symptoms but I uh yeah I, I think that the, the hardest thing that I struggle with is like the identity crisis that comes from like being related to somebody who's like really bad I think it uh makes you be really critical on yourself to a point where you actually like end up sabotaging your own life you know, like, it's good to be, like, self-aware and, like, be like, oh, you know, you want to be better and hold yourself accountable. But if you do it to a fault, then you end up 
causing harm to like your relationships and to like your psyche and you know your career so uh yeah i i think i um it's a lot <laughs> that's so, like the tip of the iceberg uh, oh, yeah, that's the tip of the iceberg we'll get back to that iceberg <laughs> so eventually your uh dad wants to take you from your mom so uh what happens uh there so I start to get older and obviously he's cycled through at this point so many women, you know, huge um, serial dater, like women predator. Um, every single time one relationship would fail, he would have one lined up ready for the next. And one in particular happened to be in California. He found her on a dating website and, um, you know, he left. And although he was really abusive to me growing up, you know, keeping in mind the fact that I wasn't close with my mom. Well, I didn't feel like I was close with her at all. Um, even though the attention I was getting from him was bad, it was still attention nonetheless. So when he left, it was like, you know, gut wrenching. Like just, I felt like I had literally no one. So he went to the States, was like, I love you, come with me and we'll figure it out. So eventually, you know, after him hounding my mom and being like, I want her to come over. She wants to come over. Like, Why won't you let her? Why won't you let her? Uh, my mom gave in. She, my mom had also remarried at this time or around this time. And, um, you know, I didn't really feel welcomed by him either. I think, again, I was seen as like a nuisance, like an extension of him. And everyone just really wanted him gone. So not feeling welcome in my mom's home with this new stepfather and then my dad leaving that's you know they just kind of gave in and I hounded them and then I left at first it was amazing because I like came over to the U.S. And, and you know I'm from this tiny town in Northern Ireland and now it's a lot bigger but when I was a kid like everyone would just dream as a kid of like getting out <laughs> and um, when I came over to the U.S. I was living in California and this like he married it to a wealthy woman and we we're living in this like essentially like borderline mansion and I was like oh this is the life like this is amazing like this is the beginning of my whole new life as like being that age I was already like you know when will my life be good <laughs> and this is the beginning of it so yeah yeah, yeah you over. you you went from rainy dreary yes. <laughs> and now you're going to sunshine every day right uh, a big home you think your life is getting better and I guess explain how your dad is able to meet these people or meet, you know, your dad, he was a dater. He met this person on, on a website, uh, yes. the lifestyle um, he was into and uh, that whole world of that he created for himself when he moved to uh, California because he is a bit of a grifter. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's the perfect word. Um, so he, I mean, he just a hardcore, I don't even want to say a woman addict, just a, a control addict, you know, just wanted to, um, so he, he met this girl online. He met a lot of his women online and still to this day, you know, has like hundreds of women on his Facebook. He always had plan B's. So he'd meet them online or he would just get, make connections everywhere he went. Every single time he went to a grocery store, he went to the pharmacist or he went um, like literally anywhere. 
if there's a pretty woman, he, that was like an opportunity for him. Like, oh, I'm going to talk to her. I'm going to see if I can maybe get a contact or I'm going to see where she lives or I'm going to, you know, like he always had plan Bs. There was always a lot of the wives he was with. They were like, you talk to so many women. He's like, oh, they're just friends. You're being paranoid. You're being silly. Women and men can be friends, you know, like grow up. Like that was the, and it worked forever, you know? Yeah. So he just, uh, in all of his relationships, he's really stereotypical, you know, very, uh, every single breakup was their fault. They were liars or they were cheats, usually accusing them of the things that he's doing himself. Um, and every single ex was terrible, you know, like every ex that he goes into, he's telling them, you're the best thing that's ever happened to me, but you, you're nothing like my previous one. My previous ex is, God, she was just a real handful and really like, yeah, love bombing, you know? So, uh, yeah. So, so your, always... your dad is a groomer of sorts. Yes. Who is looking for his next emotional uh, payoff and a money payoff. Yes. Yes. So he's um, not only looking for like emotional gratification, but he's looking for, you know, a roof over his head. Yeah, mostly just somebody, most of it is financial, you know. And when he ends up marrying them or getting with them, at first, you know, I've been fortunate and also unfortunate to gain an insight into the uh, sex life of my parents. But um from what I've gathered from all of his previous relationships, he has been, you know, at first like incredibly romantic and the sex is amazing and um, just sweeping these women off their feet and all of a sudden everything stops and there's no, there's no, there's no dates anymore. There's no emotional gratification. There's no sex life. It's like they're literally roommates that just bicker and he just doesn't really want anything to do with them from a very young age, like there's a huge cycle. And I think I noticed it by the time I was probably 12. I remember saying to him comments like, here we go again. Like literally a re it was so odd how much of a repeat each relationship was to the previous, you know, it was, it was almost exact. So your dad is abusing you. He is abusive toward women and using women for, uh, multiple reasons, but he is also abusing the system of the Mormon church. So tell us how the Mormon church plays a role in everything. So when I was moving over to the U.S., he had joined the Mormon church. And obviously this is like a perfect scenario for him, right? Like he doesn't have to put any emotional work into this. He doesn't have to put up a big old pretend front. Well, he does, but only once for three hours a week on Sundays when he has to go to church. So it's like half of the work that he has to do in his romantic relationships. And in exchange, he gets all of his rent paid for, his bills. He gets the church provides like food and things like that. He gets food and he also gets to keep me in line. He gets to get me and all the women he's dating more indoctrinated into the role that he would rather have them be in, which is like more submissive. So um, it just, he latched onto that real quick. And then before you know it, boom, of course he was like a man of God, you know, like our household turned into Jesus, 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 <laughs> like really, really quick, like literally overnight. 
And um, so anyways, we're living with his wife in California. She's Mormon. She's, uh, you know, he picked her perfectly. And we get missionaries knocking on our door who I'm still really close with this family today. And, you know, they further indoctrinate us into it and we get really close with them. And that is his opportunity to go, oh, this family, they just knocked on my door, this missionary. Great. I'm going to call the mom of the missionary and give my thanks for everything this sweet missionary has done for me and my family by knocking on my door. I'm going to call, tell me your mom's, tell me your mom's number, you know, conveniently. And then he calls her, you know, grooms her into being like lifelong friends he wants to be. So this is around the time that his marriage is going down the drain. So he's got his plan B lined up, this Mormon family that he's just gotten in contact with. And then I come home one day from school and all of our stuff is outside and we have nowhere to go after a big blowout that had happened um, the night before where he had attempted to punch the wife in the hallway and she had ducked and he punched through the wall. I was like screaming at the time in the bedroom, telling him to stop. And he came in and hit me with a flashlight and I bled. And that was the first time that he had ever seriously hit me. So I remember it really well. And pretty much, you know, that fight was about the wife not wanting to spend money, as much money on him as he wanted. There was something he wanted at the time. And that was like enough for her. I guess uh, he had threatened to throw her over the balcony as well. And then, you know, I came home that next day and all of our stuff was outside. So he calls up that Mormon family and uh, starts, you know, sowing seeds, getting ready for the next place that we move. We spent the first immediate months when we moved out from that first wife in California. Uh, I slept on a neighbor's floor. In the meantime, until he had groomed that Mormon family in Las Vegas, that's where they lived, enough to where they would let us stay with them. And we literally just slept on the floor <laughs> for like months. So the people that he's grooming, none of them know each other. Therefore, he's able to get away with it. Or is there like a common church that everyone belongs to? Um Yeah, because, you know, obviously that first wife that's there, that's part of the Mormon church, um, she knew it was bad enough to to leave. So is she talking to people? Um, What's your relationship like with her? And or is it just like this really spread out community where he's able to just maneuver within it without anyone saying, hey, we have a problem here. This this guy's a problem. So. The the family, the Mormon family, that's so they're in Las Vegas at this time. You know, he met them, obviously, because the missionary that knocked on our door, that was the son of this family. And he got in contact with the mother and tried to woo her. So um, because like the Mormon mentality, which is obviously why he chose to join, like it's very like hyper, for, hyper forgiving, hyper, hyper forgiving. If if that's that's if you're a part of the church, of course, hyper forgiving. Um, wants to be, you know, air quote, helpful. So I think he just knew that eventually if he plays his cards right and comes up with enough of a sob story, you know, he's the single guy who's gotten kicked out by this evil wife. She was abusive and 
he just kicked us she just kicked us out on the curb like a horrible cold heartless woman right like that's the story he's playing and uh i have nowhere to go with my kid like will you help me i know the your son the missionary really well and of course the son is like he's a great guy right like he's great because he's very convincing and very charismatic at first so eventually after months you know they let him they let us go and move in with them and we've never met them we've never met them we've only met the missionary son we haven't met the family the the home that we're actually moving into like i've never met them he's never even met them (laughs) um so yeah (laughs) no they just he just picked a really um you know, he scans and sees who is most likely to give him what he wants. Who's the most lenient? Who is going to give the most? Who's, yeah, who's the most giving? And that family was, so. Yeah, before we started recording, I told you to watch the movie, uh, There Will Be Blood. Yeah, I haven't watched it yet, but I I told my boyfriend that I wanted to. <laughs> because y- you are a prop, for your dad, your role is, hey, I'm this single dad down on right. his luck. People, you need to take me in. Taking him in as a single guy, maybe no. Taking him in with you with there, yes, much easier. Right. And um, I, yeah, when we moved into this family, it was really odd because you know, like we, I had moved into three different homes, slept in three different beds that I didn't know in a matter of like a year and a half. And when we moved into this house, we, uh, you know, he didn't get along with anyone like quite quickly. First, he was really charismatic and really sweet, but then all of a sudden he tried to control the wife in the home. And, and then all of a sudden he leaves, right? Like he's gone. Like this is like within like a couple of months, not, not even, I think like a couple of months. And he, uh, he was gone and he was going to live with another girl that he had met online (laughs) that I had never met. (laughs) And I all of a sudden was just living alone in his house, like with this family that I like barely even knew. And what did they think of you? And they, well, I was really rebellious at this time and I was, I was just imploding. So I was already doing drugs. I mean, I was in, um, eighth grade and I was, you know, heavy, heavy on pills. I was doing a lot of ecstasy and really just any prescription that I could get. It's not hard to find drugs in Vegas. And, um, yeah, I obviously was newly joining to the Mormon church and I think they just really wanted to help me get on the straight and narrow because I think they thought to themselves they had seen my dad they had seen me have some bruises they had seen my dad like be really manipulative with me and kind of seen warning signs so when he left they were like well we're gonna like kind of thank god we'll keep you we'll pretend we'll appease him and say hey you're a great father don't worry about it we'll keep her for a few months and whenever you're ready to get her you come get her like we support you like they're they're kind of telling him what he wants to hear so they can kind of get an opportunity to give me some goodness. (laughs) So they were telling me they wanted to adopt me. And that was like the first, one of the first moments where at that time, I mean, it was a dysfunctional family, um, no doubt, but it was the first love that I'd ever had. Like, I felt like it was genuinely a family unit that was unbelievably so much better and like new. And I just latched on 
So I was doing drugs and rebelling, but I wanted to be good for them. You know, like I wanted to change. I wanted to join the Mormon church and all that stuff. So he's pretty much like not in the picture for like months. And it was honestly uh, in a big way a relief. But unfortunately, during that time, I started to be groomed by another man who, um, whole different thing, but I ended up charging him recently with um, sexual assault. Um, he had molested me for two years because obviously he had seen that I was in a vulnerable position and didn't have any family around. Whole different thing. But yeah, so when the, my dad, my dad's trauma went on pause for a minute and then another one came up. So um, I was there for a while. I think it was over a year. And then my dad pops up again and says, hey, we're out. We're moving. Pack your shit. <laughs> and we moved to Utah. Um, there's a couple of girlfriends in between that I meet that he's been with. He pops up every once in a while. But, you know, all of a sudden I'm, I'm leaving within the week. Um, and the reason why we're leaving so quickly is because the family I'm staying with threatened him when they noticed, you know, when he would see me in the rare occasions that he would see me, there were bruises on me. So they were like, Hey, we're going to call the police. We want to adopt her. Like you're never around. You're not a good dad. Like just give her to us. And he's like, how dare you tell me I'm a bad father. I'm taking her. We're going, we're leaving. So 24 hours, literally 24 hours, my whole little community I make there is gone. And then we're in Utah and I'm in high school and then I'm living with him for years at that point. So when you leave Las Vegas, are you uh, devastated? How are you feeling about your dad? Like, are you saying like, don't touch me, like get away from me, like yeah. I am staying here? Uh, are you go back into like a, a deep funk? Yeah. Oh yeah. So, um, I'm 14 at this point. Right. So from moving over to the U S it's been, um, you know, three, two, two years, two and a half, two and a half years. And, um, I've just turned 14. I'm starting high school and I, as soon as moving in, I mean, I'm heartbroken like this family that I feel like is going to adopt me similarly to the first wife in California, you know, like all of these people that keep telling me, like, we want to take you away from this man. We want you to be family. You know, there's so many people, I mean, I'm giving you the ice tip of the iceberg, but there's so many people I'm meeting along this route that like feel for me and my situation and are starting to see through the facade that he's creating. Um, they're telling me they want to adopt me. They're telling me they want to help me. And then it's getting stripped away. So I'm like very, very quickly seeing the world from a place of it's just unstable like everything is always unstable I can't really trust anybody people are going to come into my life and then they're going to be taken away at the hands of my dad whenever he feels like it so when I'm 14 I'm like yes really the Mormon thing very quickly you know I'm starting to fight that narrative now I'm like imploding living with him because there's a hyper perfect expectation in the house. You know, like I go from living from this family that is incredibly loving and open and just want, sees me as like a, 
kind of lost puppy case. <laughs> and I'm getting all this like little, like affection, like I'm a little hurt, wounded creature. And then all of a sudden it's stripped and I am essentially, it feels like I'm like in the army and I'm living with this drill sergeant that is just constantly nitpicking and constantly yells at me, especially if he's had a bad day. I always say, you know, your job is to be seen and not heard. Um, and I'm not allowed to have boyfriends. I'm not allowed to really hang out with friends. It's pretty much just isolation because he didn't, I think looking back now, he didn't want anyone to get in my ear, you know, and, and say, Hey, do you need help? He didn't want anyone to ask me that. He didn't want shit to hit the fan. So he just kind of kept me away. So I start like, yeah, really heavily, like the drug use really goes up quite a bit. And, um, I'm doing drugs at school and my grades are completely dead in the water. And, um, yeah, that's kind of when everything really started to hit the fan. So besides the use of drugs, are you able to escape in, uh, other ways? Are you able to go to uh, a friend's home or, or things like that? Home was, was school was where I had fun. School was where I felt free. So I was, when I was home, I was on my phone. I was, how I got through my teenage years was locked in a bathroom mostly. Like that's, and still to this day, speaking of how has it affected you, you know, still to this day, if I have a bad day, it's like a muscle memory. I, I, I go to the bathroom and I just, just sit in there. <laughs> um, how I got through my teenage years was locked in my little gross apartment bathroom. And, um, you know, was telling him that I had a sore stomach or, um, that I was just going to do my nails and, you know, like that was how I just, just wanted to be the fuck away from him. So, uh, yeah. And then another fortunate aspect of looking back, you know, the Mormon church at the time, I was, um, my dad was obviously drilling me. The only socialization I could have was a part of the Mormon church because that would keep me in line. You know, that was a reach that he could handle. So I was allowed to go to like, what's called like young women's events, like the youth, the women's youth groups, but I was the only young woman. So it was me and an old lady. Um, I would hang out with them Wednesday nights and she very quickly took me in and and would actually lie to my dad, say, oh, we've got a church thing. We've got a prep. But really, she was just bring me to her house so I could watch TV and eat food. You know, so there were people looking out for me and they knew, but everyone was too afraid to kind of pop the bubble and and cause conflict. So your dad chose the Mormon church because of all of these things that could be paid for. And... Obviously, there's a lot of uh, rules within the Mormon church that fit the ideology as far as men and women go. Uh, do you believe during this time that your dad actually believes in God and the Mormon church? I, there's so long I thought that he did. Honestly, even until recently. Um, I'm getting a huge perspective shift now, being an adult and seeing it through an adult lens. But, you no, know, it's so clear that he uh, 
it's, it's, it's food, it's food, it's rules that he, he likes, he likes his women in the rules that the Mormon church can give because the Mormon, the Mormon church sees marriage as like a huge thing, you know? So if he gets the right woman, who's Mormon, who's submissive enough, she won't, a divorce would be like a really terrible thing to go through. The, 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 the patriarch of the family is the most respected thing and never, you know, yeah. So it, it really, it really uh, was, a, it was an accessory. It really helped his plan, you know, nailed it home, <laughs> hit it home run. <laughs> so something that I haven't brought up yet has been, are you talking to your mom at all? Uh, what is your relationship like with her during this time? So I was talking to my mom um, when I was in Vegas. I was not really telling her much. One, because I was like in that abusive kind of relationship where I was being like um, molested by the um, older guy. And um, I was in middle school and just running around like hectic. So I wasn't really like talking to her that much. She kind of was just, yeah, my memory of her, she just really wasn't like around. I didn't really hear from any of the family. I got like some messages on like Christmas from like the rest of the family. But like other than that, like they kind of just completely faded away like out of my life until I was like 17. Um, But my mom, she was calling me, um, but I was just really emotionally shut down when I was in Vegas. When I was um, in Utah, however, she would call a bit more often, but I was living with my dad and he would like hover around, you know, they're super controlling. So I didn't ever really feel safe to tell her any of it. And also like, I didn't really think that she cared. I didn't really think anybody cared because obviously this was happening before and nobody stopped it. So like, it's not really going to be news to anybody. You know what I mean? So it's like a lot of complicated emotions as to why I didn't really tell anybody. So where you are right here has to be just a a lonely, lonely place to be. And from your dad to the mom's side of the family and, you know, trust later on in life will become a huge issue. It it can't not be as far as who to trust in life. Maybe even just trusting yourself as well. And at this point here, you are doing drugs. You're finding freedom in school. Um, So, how uh, does your story um, unfold from here? So um, as I start to get older and I'm imploding, and I think my character naturally is just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm quite a curious person. So I, I, he had quite a hard time making me submissive. You know, I think for whatever reason, I don't know. And I thank God all the time. I'm not a religious person, but if it exists, you know, I, I thank it because um, I I don't know how I had the backbone that I had a lot of the time. So we start to really get into fights 
um, within the first year or two. He's currently married at this time when I'm in high school and living with him. Me and her are still like best friends to this day, like we're like family because of what we went through. But he, um, you know, he's really, really mentally abusing her. And me and her are tapping in, tapping out. You know, like she's helping me when I'm getting abused by him. She'll come and literally be like, I'm going to pick a fight with him. So that way he puts his attention on me now. And then I'll get a break. And then we'll take turns and we'll rotate. And that was the dynamic for a few years. Um, But things start to really, you know, explode a bit because I started to rebel for whatever reason. I don't know. And I started to fight back with him. I started to say, like, look, you can't talk to me like the way you're talking to me, like calling me constantly names, calling me a stupid little slut for having a crush on somebody in school. Um, We're seeing a a cute text from a boy, like a smiley face or something. The verbal assaults would start, they started to quickly progress into like physical abuse. So um, a lot of, started off with a lot of hits in the back of the head, a lot of, um, a lot of supposed to be grateful, like narratives, you know, like I brought you into this world and you're so ungrateful, like a very like narcissistic, like parent thing to say. Um, You're supposed, like I brought you into this world and I can take you out. Or um, I'm bigger, better, stronger, wiser than you. And I always will be. So watch your mouth. And, it, you know, there's a bit more of a physical implication to. And then, you know, I started fighting back and saying, you can't talk to me this way. Like, you're pissing me off. I would say, you know, like, shut the fuck up. Like, stop. Like, leave me alone. After I was being yelled at for eight hours. Sometimes he'd keep me off school for days. And uh, just, just because he wanted someone to yell at, you know and have to go to work she couldn't just stay home and watch out for me so he uh started like hitting me in the back of the head and um then it's kind of progressed into kicking and then it was choking and then it was i'm gonna fucking kill you i had to keep my mouth shut but even if i kept my mouth shut sometimes he would just come up to me and then put his foot behind me and trip me up and then push me on the ground and then he'd say you need to keep your wits about you because if I can do this to you, anyone can. As if he was trying to teach me, like, to him, he would tell me, oh, that's, I'm, I, I'm doing this to you because I love you. I want you to go strong. I want this to never happen to you from anybody else. But it wasn't. It was him. I'm hitting you because I love you. Because you had a, you got a, a B in one of your classes or a C in one of your classes. Or caught you smoking weed. Or you lied about texting a guy, you know. And this is going to keep you safe. It was all... You know, and it was just especially worse when he had a bad day. It, there was, yeah, it, I, w- I was his emotional, you know, punching bag. So that's kind of where, that's when the abuse really was quite chronic by the time I was probably, probably 14 is when it started to get bad. So while you're here in Utah, things have gotten really bad. So what's the event that happens where your relationship with your dad changes where you might not be in the home with him uh, like you are right now? So I ended up going to court against him. Um, I went to school and I hadn't been to school in a few days and I had a boyfriend at the time whose mother actually worked for the school and I had grown really close to her and she knew he was a bad guy. And my boyfriend at the time you know, knew that my, my dad was real bad. And after a particularly bad night, which is what the court case was based off of, um, I, you know, 
had some bruises. I had ha- obviously had no sleep for like days because he had been fighting with me. And, um, you know, he had told his mom finally and was like, look, very important note, by the way, I was, I, my dad had told me for years that I was an illegal immigrant. And that that was a big motivator for me to never tell anybody about the abuse because I was afraid I'd be deported back to Northern Ireland. So he was like, screw it. I don't care if she gets deported. You know what? Anything is better than this. I'm going to tell my mom and she'll handle it. She obviously worked for the school. So she was a mandatory reporter. So she called CPS and um, CPS came in and took me from the home right away, interviewed me. And then, um, he eventually, he got charged with, I don't even know, he was faced battery charges and neglect charges. That kind of put a huge chapter in our relationship. I was 17 at that time, was put in a group home for a bit and then went back to Northern Ireland with my mom at 17, years after not seeing my family and I hadn't seen any of them in years. And um, from that point on, me and him and our relationship, it was very sporadic we're nowhere near as close. And what is your dad's response immediately after this happens? Because I can see someone like him trying to get at you in a bunch of different directions because he has uh, so many tricks in his bag. Oh, I went into the courtroom against him and he looked across the room at me, spat on the floor, attempted to spit at me. And shook his head and he was crying, bawling, like, like I was a horrible, like, oh, she's so horrible. Like, you know, and I'm like, at the time of the whole court, he's like 16, right? I'm like, (laughs) um, yeah, pretty, you know, he was just saying that I was a liar and we were forced to go to court mandated therapy right immediately after the, you know, they want to, no matter how bad abuse is. the justice system is just really gung-ho and always putting the kid back into the home. It's just like, if they can find a way to do it, they will. And um, so they put us into court mandated therapy and um, he uh, literally told the therapist like that he thought I was mentally ill and that I was on drugs. And so I was just, you know, it was all just completely, completely flipped. And then when he realized that wasn't working, he like tried to like hit on my therapist and like become good friends with her. Like just, just going through so many different things that he could trying to find any, like he could stand on other than saying I fucked up and I'm honestly so sorry. Like he just he's incapable of doing that. Yeah, he went through all his bag of tricks to see which one of them would work. Would, yeah. Until, the line. <laughs> until they're yeah. all exhausted and none of them work, then you're just, you don't have anything left. Yeah, throw out a line and see see what would bite, pretty much. So you end up back in Northern Ireland, and you're with your mom. How does your life change there, and you start to get a perspective of what you had been going through? Uh, yeah, um, I. So this is where everything just really freaking flips. I, I I always thought it was really bad, and um, it's still something I'm going through now because I'm genuinely like. There's like a Stockholm Syndrome-esque thing that I'm kind of going through at the moment. And it started to happen around this time that I went back and, you know, reunited with my mom and everything. Um, 
when I turned 18, I had found out that my dad was a chronic, not only just a sex addict, which I had, I had seen insights to growing up. You know, I'd seen that he was always flirting with women. I'd seen all that. But um, he not only was that, but he was a uh, chronic flasher and has multiple sexual like assault type charges. And it's been happening from what she can tell since he was like 19 years old. He got dishonorably just discharged from the army. But he had told me that he had left the army to be with my mom because he loved her so much. You know, it was all sacrifice when he told it. So I had started to piece together, like, what? Like, why was I living with this person? You know, like, everyone knew this guy was an abusive guy, obviously. But if people knew that he had done this, you know, like, what? Like, it was just, like, so wild. Because he had never done anything sexual to me. He'd never given me any sexual abuse. Um, but that being said, things started to click. And I started to see things a little differently. So... Going back to that like golf course story that I had mentioned earlier. So as a kid, and it makes a lot of sense now, but it does kind of haunt me quite a bit is, you know, when I was a kid and I'd walk home with him and we'd cut through a golf course as like a shortcut to get back to the house. He would tell me, hey, I really need to pee. Go wait over there in the woods. And um, I would always be like kind of afraid, like, what? Like, I don't want to be in the woods on my own because you have to cut through this little wooded area, you know, to get through the course. And it was literally like clockwork and it would always be right by this one house. And then I have a memory of one day, you know, a husband coming out and like yelling and my dad grabbing his pants and grabbing me and sprinting, like grabbing by the arm, sprinting away. And it turns out he's been flashing that house on his way home with me cutting through the golf course when he would walk me home. So there's all these like little memories like that, that start to click when I find all this information out from my mom and she's still not really sure what to do with the information, you know, because he's kind of filled her head with lies and she's verified some of it, but a lot of it is in her own intuition of like, I think there's a lot more to unpack. So I'm a very curious person. And, but that being said, I, I did deny it. I didn't want to look. I think I knew that it was going to be worse than what she had told me. And I didn't want to look and find out because, you know, like I just, it was just too much. It was like my brain was exploding <laughs> thinking about figuring that out. I uh, start to, you know, get older and some of my friends from high school come forward and they message me, you know, and they're just like, Hey, you know, you should know that when I was your friend in high school, when I was like a freshman or I was a sophomore, um, you know, your dad sometimes would text me pretending to be you. Or he would text me and say that you needed help or that you didn't have your phone on you and that you should, and that they should come over to your house. And, um, I was like, wait, what? And then he would answer the door and he'd be naked or they'd sleep over at my house and he would be like lying on top of them naked. They would wake up and he would be on top of them. So all of this like stuff starts to just come up within like two, three years. Like all, like all of these little tidbits. And I'm like, what the fuck? So I'm like pissed, you know? Like I lived in the house of this guy and 
he has raised me on this narrative that everything he's done has been for me. It was all bullshit. It was all, um, I was there for him to get not just financial stability, but underage women and also just regular age women. And, um, I start to confront him and I'm like, I know that you, I know what you are. I think, I think that I started to feel more confident. Like I didn't like to say the word, like you're a pedophile, you're a predator, but I'm like, you know, I'm pissed. (laughs) I'm still pissed. And, um, actually quite recently after more information that I've found out, he's married into a new relationship and, um, yeah, I guess, you know, tried to sexually assault the, the stepdaughter that was in the home. And this family reached out to me out of nowhere. That, and I've cut him out at this point, by the way, for three years now. And then they just reached out to me and they're like, hey, we're wondering if you can answer some questions about your dad. Can we talk to you? We want to hire a private investigator. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I have unanswered questions. Like, please do. So um, I tell them everything I know. And the private investigator that like, confirms, you know, all of the the suspicions that me and my mom had about him, you know, I think that there was some really young kids that he's flashed and um, he's attempted to like have sex with at least three girls that have been under the age of 14. So you really now get the full scope of who your dad was and is, uh, and he really hasn't been around in these uh, three years of this cutting off of contact, but has he been trying to get into contact with you? So I, I've tried to close contact with him a thousand times, and it's just never respected as a very typical narcissist thing to never respect a boundary. And, um, I was like, I know everything that you are. He did. He, I didn't admit to him everything that I knew, but I just said, like, I know what you are. And I know that you've hidden a lot from me. And I'm sure that everything I found out is a tip of the iceberg and I don't want anything to do with you. Um, around this time I cut him out, I was going through that sexual assault case against the man who molested me when I was living in Las Vegas with that family that I'd mentioned previous. And I had noticed that, you know, he was just never there for me and never asked me how I was doing. And I just said that he was selfish and that he's not a father and I don't want anything to do with him. And it went in one ear out the other. He just, you know, said, you're such an angry, hateful girl. Very lacking, devoid of any accountability and like flipping it on its head and telling you like, I'm the, I have a problem that I'm holding him accountable and that I want to be a stand-up person for me and just in general. And that I, I'm bad for that. I'm, I'm bad for not just having unconditional love no matter what, because that is what family is. That's what, no matter what, you're supposed to always respect family. And um, yeah, he just sent me a bunch of texts and pretty much started stalking, <laughs> started sending mail to my house, like covert hate mail and packages with like gifts that were supposed to make me feel really bad. And um, what would one of those gifts be? So when I was a, when I was a kid, I used to, he used to make me sit in a room, um, in high school 
he used to make me sit in a room and stare at the statue of a Buddha and tell me to find peace because he was sick of me not being just perfectly loving and happy when he would hit me or lecture me for eight hours. And he would make me sit for hours and look like no phone or nothing and make me sit and look at the statue. So in the mail, he sent me that statue when I cut him out. So just really like, you know, when people would open it and he would, he would sign these letters (laughs) with not his name because he knew that I would probably call the police and say, Hey, I'm getting hate mail. Can you tell this guy to stop? And he would sign it with not his name. He would, you know, pretend it was anonymous because he knew, you know, he knew what he was doing. He knew that he could get in trouble, you know? Um, so yeah, just really covert. Like if someone was to see the package, they'd be like, that's nice. He sent you a pretty little Buddha statue, but they don't realize the context of, oh, that's like actually really fucking sick. You know, like it's pretty sick. So, um, yeah. <laughs> he uh he, he turned into like this borderline stalker you know like if you had heard of a romantic relationship doing that or an ex-partner doing that it would be seen as stalking but because it's a parent it's not you know it's just a dad who's hurt that loves his daughter you know and so many people when i cut them out they're like oh, you know your dad really he does love you right but that's because they were all groomed by him to genuinely think that he did love me, you know, because that's what he always put on. There's, there's so many people that have been kind of groomed by his story. The, the way he lives his life is he wants to, the most important thing to him is his reputation. You know, it's nothing else. So he's spent his whole life building his reputation to be like the all loving, perfect father and the all loving, perfect husband. And so yeah, when I cut him out, a lot of people disapproved. A lot of people didn't and were like good riddance. But some of the, you know, some of the people that he's really gotten in the ear of still genuinely think that he's a good guy until it'll happen to them, you know, one day. And that's, then they'll realize, oh crap, you know. So where is he now? He's on the run. <laughs> so he, um, this family that he recently married into he fucked with the wrong family because the family happened to be, have a cop and like, I don't know, some connection to the FBI. So no one really knows where he is. <laughs> um, and I've messaged all of his family. Like when I found all of this stuff recently, I, I thought to myself, you know, he might not get justice through our legal system, but I will make sure that I am telling everyone about it. So that way everybody knows. Um, what he is and what he does. And I mean, that's all I can do. So I messaged everyone I could and was like, Hey, just so you're aware, this is what's going on. He's on the run. And, uh, yeah, they're all, uh, kind of telling me like, he's saying he's in Norway. He's saying he's in France. He's saying he's in Scotland. Like no one really knows where he is. <laughs> so yeah, he's a psycho, not just a narcissist. So, now that you're no contact, you've really understood exactly who your dad was and is and what he's capable of. You know, you've you sat across from me today telling me your story for 
everyone to hear. I spoke to you before, and you sound well-adjusted in the sense of um, being able to tell these things uh, with... I well adjust it's a bad word. Uh, but, <laughs> no, I get what you're saying. <laughs> but like you're able to tell it calmly and a lot of the times with, with laughter. Um, yeah. That's something I was taught from a very young age to do. <laughs> so when it comes with dealing with this and accessing all of your emotions, you've used coping mechanisms to fill voids uh, throughout your life due to the hurt and the pain of things. Um, where did you begin, I guess, as far as feeling everything besides logically understanding what happened and a grief process? Like, how mm-hmm. do you go through this pile of um, shit? shit? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is. I mean, it's not just one or two or three things. There's a lot of different things going on here to unpack you know which one do you start with first um and which ones become i guess the most painful when you start touching them i know that was a lot of stuff in one question that was like no 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 that was like 17 questions in one no it's good that's it's good it's good i uh i think i have i think i can answer it so i um i like what you said about in terms of like articulating your emotions and like feeling them were like actually two very different things. And, you know, going back to like the first question of how it affected me, that's definitely something that I still, my dad wasn't a role model in the sense of teach me what to be. He was my role model of what not to be. So being incredibly self-critical of myself in my intentions and like really trying to make sure that I'm like a good person, a good person. I'm a good person, you know, one, because that's what he's always made me feel like I wasn't and two because I'm related to him. So I'm terrified that there's some genetic thing that I am destined to be, to be like, um, but, uh, yeah, I think I go ahead. I, before I forget, are there moments where you catch yourself doing something that might might be a trait of his? And how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, like, so when I, you know, when I started hitting, like, 20, yeah, like, 2021, 20, you know, I started being held to, like, adult standards. So, like, being the teenager that just wanted to party all the time didn't, couldn't cut it really anymore. I was like, I got to start focusing on my future. I got to figure out what I want to do. And I started, um, I think the over-communication, that's when I really started noticing. Like, he used to lecture and, and berate me. And so when I talk, I talk and talk and talk. And obviously, we're in a podcast setting, so it's, it's different now. But in, in life in general, I am, a ch- I, I am a chatterbox. Like, I talk a lot. and. I feel sick when I'm like communicating. Like I feel sick. Like I'm like, oh, I'm just like him, you know? Like I have opinions and I'm saying my opinion. And I'm just like him. And it, you know, it's, 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 um, yeah. It's like, it's, it's, it's identity crisis essentially, you know? Like 
feeling like you're suffocating somebody by having an opinion about anything. I don't know if I've noticed. I think everyone has like their little human moments of like selfishness or whatever. And of course I've had my moments of that, but I don't, it, it, it genuinely does terrify me the thought of being like him. I, I really hope that I'm not, <laughs> but that being said, you know, it's kind of like an inevitable thing that, yeah, you know, I, I, I will, I will have picked up toxic ways of coping. I think when I'm in a relationship, I want to run a lot. I want to just leave when the second things get scary or hard or there's an issue. Because I'm so afraid that I don't have the capability of handling it in a good way. Like maybe if I handled it like my father, you know, so I'll like end it before I even give myself like a chance (laughs) to like severely fuck something up. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's difficult. Have you talked with your therapist about it's it being okay that I have specific traits like your dad? Like because it's inevitable that that would come up. Yeah. It's and a normal human thing. It's yeah, it's just inevitable that that's going to happen. And, you know, there might have been these traits that people liked about your dad that might actually be like, oh, I, you know, I picked up this good thing, even though it might have been fake on his side. But, like, you picked it up. But it's inevitable because I I just kind of sitting here and trying to put myself in your position and how I would try and how I would feel about those things. And to me, it would be like, oh, that I don't like that. I don't know if I'm comfortable because you're because it's gone to such a level um that it's I'd scary. Be like it's scary you're scared scary. and, and if yeah. someone even mentioned it saying hey your dad might have done something like that and then you might be like whoa oh no way yeah you know well, what so I mean? my, yeah so my stepdad once <laughs> years ago had said something to me um he he like is a big animal lover and so am I and he had this dog you know, he, he, he didn't do anything that was terrible or whatever, but he, he yelled at the dog. He yelled at the dog and was like, the dog was running around in mud and he, the dog ran through the house. He was like, whoa, you know, why'd you do that? And I was like, don't, don't yell at the dog. Like, it's a dog. He didn't fucking mean to, you know. And he's in a really bad part of his life. So, um, and he hate, he really hates my dad. And I think as um, a young age, he, he never really liked me because he just saw me as like my dad's little, you know, little minion, <laughs> devil spawn. <laughs> and um, he said to me, this is years ago, but he, he said, um, okay, Steven or something, something like that. That's my dad's name. And I was so, I, I think I was 18, I think at the time, I think. And I was so, uh, so hurt i mean it's still one of the most i think that's what's so you know it's funny you hear other people like with their parents and they're like 
you hear somebody say, oh, you look just like your, your mom, or your dad. I will never say that to anybody, you know, because I just don't know like what their situation is. But if someone says to me that you look just like him, you know, I just, I'm like, fuck, I'm going to go get facial reconstructive surgery. Um, you know, it's really, really like, it, it, I think it's the ultimate nightmare for me is to be, to turn out like him. It really is. And, and yeah, just what you said about dealing with the, it is relatively normal. Like everyone has like selfishness. Everyone has like their moments of weakness. Everyone has their moments where they're just shitty, you know, like, and I definitely like have the, all of those things I, I can be not to be yeah, cliche about PMS, but during my time of the month, like, you know, I'm irritable. Like, don't get me wrong. <laughs> and, um, I do think, yeah, it's really difficult. Like I, I'm really, really would crucify myself. It's it's my biggest nightmare is, is to relate anything even close to him. So how do you go through your healing process, um, dancing around this landmine and at the same time, what, um, has been the most difficult thing for you going forward as far as uh, relating to others in relationship or um, I guess, how do you view the world after all of this? Like not just your place in the world, but you lived in such a, an odd way um, for so long with someone who um, with no sense of right or wrong, and obviously you have your sense of right or wrong and you probably have your own view now of the world that is completely different than yeah. most people. There's, you know. Yeah. So um, how do you go about that and, and how do you see things and what do you want for yourself? Um, I see I, – so I'm in therapy every week. So that helps me a lot with what I'm about to say. It's, it's gotten a lot better. But I think um, it's quite difficult for me to ju- to trust people. You know, I, I don't see um, the whole everything happens for a reason narrative is not something that I particularly love. Um, I don't love that that whole spiel. Um, but I am learning to trust and find, like, I have to kind of remind myself a lot, like, you know, my life is beginning now and I get to be free now. And I get to like decide from this point forward, like what story I want to write and who I want to be. And I'm trying to like cling on to that. Um, that gives me a lot of hope. But um, yeah, it definitely is giving me, you know, shaky, shaky. It, it, I'm in a really great relationship. I've been with my current partner for three years. And um, I had, you know, virtually no faith in men at all not just men, I mean, people, you know, in general. And, um, I really want to, uh, it, it's odd for me to be in a relationship that's good. You know, it is very, it's very odd. <laughs> like my partner is like so sweet to me and I'm like, you're suspicious, sir. Like you want something for me, you know, but it's not, he just is loving and wants to, to give me love, you know? And so I'm, learning how to swim in that, I guess you could say, it's just very new. It's very, very new. Um, and yeah, I'm just, I'm excited to keep going. But I think what I want to do is like, I don't think I'll ever go back into 
I think my, my dad gave me a, a VIP course, you could say. And so I'm very afraid of uh, getting into any situation ship that would be anything similar to that. So I, I like to think that my I've acquired some good radar, some good radar of like people I want to surround myself with and things that I want to do and just people I want to be around. So um, that's my kind of fuel going forward. It's like focusing on that. And my last question before we leave today. Yeah. Do you have new coping mechanisms for uh, the drugs and everything else that was going on back then when you are having uh, down days? Yes. Uh, journaling and therapy. So I haven't been on any, like, I was on chron- like clonopin for a long time when I first turned into an adult, like, you know, 18, 19. And until I was like 21 and I don't do it anymore. Um, and I journaling is a big thing that's got me through in therapy. I think I will be in therapy for like the rest of my life. Um, and just for maintenance, but you know, I'm over the biggest hurdles I think, but for now, like you said, I'm in the zone of like, I can articulate everything that's going on. My brain is very much still in the processing stage of like, Okay, I can see it all. I can articulate it, but like feeling it, like it, it's it's there's a bit of a protective disconnect happening still, and I think my body is slowly, slowly letting myself feel it at increments. You know, so that way I don't just get completely overwhelmed. Um, but yeah, therapy is my biggest coping mechanism. I, that that is literally my new drug. <laughs> yeah. So if you had any words of wisdom or advice for others going through the same thing, what would it be? Um, blood is not everything at all. And you are not doomed to have the same story as your parents, that you are your own person. When I was growing up, there was no individuality for my dad at all. Like, and he trained me to think that. He trained me to not have any individuality. I was purely an extension of him. And that's just so far from the truth. I think that you don't have to be afraid of yourself. You can let yourself, like, yeah, bloom into, like, who you want to be. And you're more than capable of being that, you know, you're not doomed just to be like your parents and you deserve more <laughs> leave. Like don't like just, you deserve all of the high expectations. They're not that high. <laughs> you deserve it. It's not a high expectation at all. Well, Leighton, I want to thank you for being our guest today and sharing your story. You know, you went through uh, so much in so many different ways and I'm happy you're here. A lot of people wouldn't be as functional as you are uh, right now uh, going through all the different types of things that you went through, you know, not just physical, but all these mental things, the stuff that happened to you, uh, understanding what happened to your friends and who your dad was. It's a real 
Um, it's a, it's a lot to mentally deal with and it, you being here and being able to tell your story and sit across from me and do it so clearly with such clarity, um, and, and giving people a voice themselves who have been in your situation before. And you just, you just really, really did a good job today. So I'm proud of you. Um, oh, thanks. <laughs> so thank you. My daddy issues in me when you say I'm proud of proud of you. I'm like, yes. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> the daddy issues is real. <laughs> All right. So thank you once again. And if you want to be a guest on our show, like Layton was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says guest form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our guest form page. Please read all of the instructions on our guest form page and send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or just fill out our submit page and press the submit button. And also, please send it in the format that we're asking for on the guest form page. Uh, also, at our website, we have our very own safe social network. It's our support group. So please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says support group. If you need support, we are there. We have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, every Saturday night, and every Thursday afternoon. We also have forum boards on there, and we have episodes that never made it to air, and we have episodes that have no ads on it as well. And if you just want to support our show, because our show needs all the support it can get, we run on a very, 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 very shoestring budget. Please do join our support group. It supports you and it supports us as well. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at domesticshelters.org. At domesticshelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you're going through. They have phone numbers and websites for shelters and domestic violence agencies. It is an excellent free resource, so please do go visit domesticshelters.org today. And that is it for our episode. I really want to thank Leighton for being our guest. She did a tremendous job. So from Leighton and myself, I hope you have a good night. <laughs>